6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. The horse leech have two daughters crying, give, give. Leeches graphically depict the attitude of greed, the tenacious insistence on having more of whatever they desire. The horse leech had two daughters saying, give, give. And uh, Now, the next line is a pattern that we encounter frequently in the scripture. It's sometimes called the X and X plus one pattern. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things say not, it is enough. We, we first encountered this probably in the book of Job, chapter 5, where Job uses that very briefly. We're going to encounter it a handful of times later in this chapter. There are three things, no four. Or there's four things, you know, whatever. It, it's a common pattern. What it's intended to do is not to make a, a complete list. It's not as a list means everything. It's just a way to stress the last one in the list. And uh, so there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things. I, that, that say not, it is enough. The first is the grave. <laughs> grave is never full. You and I live in a funeral procession. We're all going to die on time. Not a moment early, not a moment late. God knows what he's doing. The grave is never full. And the barren womb. Probably only a woman that's barren can fully understand the yearning. The earth that is not filled with water. You've been on deserts. You get the feeling of the idiom here. And the fire that saith it is enough. Fire will burn until there's nothing left to burn. It burns out. So it's drawing a parallelism there, of course, between the rest. The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Pretty graphic. <laughs> then we get another one of these little lists. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, for which I know not. For which, for the four, for which I know not. There are three things which are too wonderful, too amazing, I can't understand them for me, yea, for which I know not. Then he lists four. The way of the eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Now, there are all kinds of attempts by commentators to say, gee, what do these four really have in common? And I think, to me, it, it, I don't think it's that much of a mystery. Each one of these things go where there are no paths. They go their own way, in a way that's unique. 
The eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I've done no wickedness. Boy, if there is a verse that describes our entertainment industry, in fact, our whole culture, but especially Hollywood, which is the vanguard of that culture, um, that adultery is okay. We, set, we have magazines devoted to find out who's sleeping with who lately. We, 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 we have to have a, a high-speed camera to keep track of the calendar changes of who's married to who when. Right? They're on, they're off, they're on, they're off, and there's a whole industry that uh, gets paid for tracking who's with whom. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She, she eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I've done no wickedness. The casualness. In previous cultures, they at least had the decency to try to do it covertly or covered up, not flaunt it. For three things the earth is disquieted, and four, for, and for four which it cannot bear. Three things that the earth is disquieted, and for four which it cannot bear. These are things that we can't handle, we don't like. For a servant when he reigneth. Jeroboam was a servant that ended up leading a civil war and dividing Israel into two, 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 two houses. And uh, he was the first king of the northern kingdom. A fool when he is filled with food. That probably typifies the rich fool that Jesus talked about who built bigger barns, who obviously eating gourmet food at the time. For an odious woman when she is married, an unloved woman brings grief to the marriage. And a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. The idea here is that a poor, poor person that uh, was walked on is suddenly rich and becomes overbearing. That's sort of the, the implied idiom that's going on here. There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. We're going to see four things here. As a minimum, these four things are each going to give us a lesson because they're small, but they're very clever. And the first one are the ants. They are people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Little tiny ants, but they're smart enough to get ready in the summer because winter's coming. It says they're not strong, but they can carry nine times their weight on their back. I haven't tried that lately. Then there are the conies. They look like little rabbits, but they're not. They're, they're similar to rabbits, but they, they have long hair, short tail, round ears. And by the way, they chew the cud, which makes them, you know. Anyway, um, they are uh, feeble, thus meaning defenseless, yet they make their houses in the rocks, which is very clever because they, they can't defend themselves, so they hide in cracks and in the rocks and so forth. When you go up to En Gedi on the trip uh, up the valley, you'll, you go up the nature preserve, and you usually can see the conies up there. They're kind of fun. They're cute little things. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. Locusts are highly organized when they pass through a region, but they don't have a king. That insight, by the way, is is incidental here, but very useful to us if you're going to study your Bible seriously. And let me give you an example. 
When we get to Revelation chapter 9, you have one of the weirdest passages in the Scripture. In Revelation 9, verse 1, it says, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given, to him, see the star is an angel, uh, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, the abuso. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose a smoke out of the pit, and as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts, there's that word again, upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And there are many that are reading this, figure, well, this must be some kind of strange locust that's coming, a literal locust. Well, let's read on. It's commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither the green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Wow. To them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And the torment was as the torment of a scorpion which, when he striketh a man. Is this a biological thing? It sounds like it, but who knows? And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. They shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. I have no idea what that means. Well, except what it says. And then we get to the climax of it. The shapes of the locusts were like horses, but prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns of gold, and their faces were as faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. Now, up till now, you figure, gee, these things must be some pretty strange physical creatures here. And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. Well, that sounds, you know, I, there's some prophecy buffs think that sounds like a helicopter. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them. Uh-oh. What did we just learn from Proverbs 30, verse 27? The locusts have no king. So I'm going to use that as my authority to suggest that these are not locusts. That's, the word is used idiomatically. They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. So from this, if you're a sophisticated Bible student, you recognize that Revelation 9 is a demonic horde of some kind, and you're, you're, you get that clue by invoking Proverbs 30, verse 27. When you get to Amos chapter 1 in your studies, in, which is translated from the Masoretic text, as most of the Old Testament is for you, it reads as follows, verse 1, And thus hath, thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. What does that mean? I had no idea. When I was studying the commentary to develop Amos, I thought, yeah, this, this may, I, I, can't, I can't make head or tail of this one. But I decided to do something rather radical. I turned to the Septuagint. That's the Old Testament that was translated into Greek over a thousand years before the Masoretic text. We have a text in Greek, the precision of the Greek, that predates the Masoretic text. What does it say? It turns out one little mark in the Hebrew changes the whole grammar and complexion, strangely enough. If you translate what the Septuagint has, it reads as follows. The Lord hath shown me, and behold, a swarm of locusts were coming. And behold, one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. 
Well, this grabbed me because I've always been puzzled. I've studied the Ezekiel 38 passage for many decades. I've always been puzzled that this guy Gog, who's obviously from the context, the leader of Magog, shows up with no, no links, no background. He just, he's suddenly there. That's not like the Bible. Almost everybody that is a key player has, is, it's set up. There's linkages, genealogical or some kind. Gog just shows up. And that always made me uncomfortable. Is he just the king of Magog? That's what you assume, but that's not what it says. It turns out that Gog is a title of a demonic king. So when you say Gog and Magog, Magog is the nation or the people, but Gog is the demon force behind it, analogous to what you discover when you study Daniel 10 carefully, that there's a demonic power behind every major global movement. This also explains how you can have Gog and Magog event before the millennium, probably even before the seventh week of Daniel, but anywhere in that area. Then you have Lord come back and there's the millennium where Satan's bound for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan's loose for a while and there's a Gog-Magog battle at the end of the millennium in chapter 20 of Revelation. A lot of people get those two confused. They're different. There's a lot of circumstances. They're, di they're clearly different if you study the text, the context of both. Well, Magog surviving the millennium makes sense. It's a nation. The nation's still around as, na as a nation, as a, as a people. Gog's still around because he's a demon title. You follow me? See how that helps? All because of this glimmer we get out of Amos 7.1. Well, let's get back to Proverbs. We have the, lo the locusts have no king, and yet they go forth all of them by bands. That little insight by the Holy Spirit is a little key that unlocks some other prophetic problems. I'm not trying to make a big thing of that. I'm just trying to show you how a subtlety one place will unlock an insight in another place. And as that kind of thing starts to happen in your own study of the Bible, it will begin to raise the fog. You'll begin to understand what I call the integrity of design. You'll discover, and you need to do it for yourself, that every number, every place name, every subtlety in the text is there deliberately by God for some purpose. And uh, he always rewards the diligent. When you start picking up one of these and track it down, if you do it diligently, God will give you a surprise. Okay, got one more of these four. And that's the spider, as it says here. Take a hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. Well, it turns out that makes sense in a sense, but that's not what it says. Um, the word spider is shamameth which actually means a little lizard, a little house lizard. I'm not trying to make a big deal between a spider and a lizard, but it's a different word, okay? And what it really says here, the lizard that you can catch with the hand, yet it is in the king's palaces. There's the implied paradox of that, that it undergirds the, 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 the text here. Each one of these four are little tiny animals that in some way are clever. Each one of these little animals have a lesson to teach. The ants prepare for the season that's coming. And so forth. See, and uh, the conies have, are intrinsically defenseless, so they provide by they, they offset by living in crags. And the locusts have no king, and yet they're still organized. Interestingly, and a spider, even though you can catch it with your hands, he somehow finds his way into palaces. He has little uh, 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 stickers like on his feet. He can climb on a tessellated wall or on a ceiling. There are three. <laughs> another one of these. There. There be three things which go well, yea, four, are comely in, the go in going. So these, we've had some bad ones, some dismal ones. Here's a dandy. 
These three, these three things, that yea, four, that are comely in going. A lion which is strongest among the beasts and turneth not away for any. Where does the lion sleep in the forest? Anywhere he wants to, right? <laughs> then it has a greyhound and a he-goat also and a king against whom there is no rising up. So these are things that go well, except there's a small problem here. Your King James people have translated it greyhound and have probably done as well as anybody. But the term is actually a combination of two Hebrew words, mothen, which refers to the loins or hips, and the zarzir, which is girded or girt or an alert in some respects. Those two words together imply that whatever this is, it's girded at the loins. Well, what on earth is that? Nobody knows. This is the only reference, and there's all kinds of conjectures. A greyhound is reasonable because they are alert and, 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 and quick to spring forth. The, uh, a strutting rooster is what some of the modern translations have chosen. If you check a Bible encyclopedia dictionary, they, they, they admit they don't know what it means. They even some, some commentators suspect it's some kind of extinct animal. So, but in the spirit of the passage, the fact that we've got one that's a real runner fits what I'm about to show you. So uh, it and the he-goat are both quick, and, and quick, quick runners and quick climbers and so forth. And uh, so the, uh, when we go to Hebrews chapter 12, we have a, the application of this in a sense. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and set down the right hand through of God. So the idea of running a race is, is something that Paul picks up, of course, in Hebrews 12. And Habakkuk has another uh, inspirational passage in Habakkuk chapter 3. And I love this. He says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. Love that. Everything's dry. The cupboard's bare, but still. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And notice the way he articulates the upswing here. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. This is a, 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 a psalm that's tucked away in Habakkuk. And that's, that describes the he-goat that's a climber in the rocks or the, the fast runner with a strutting rooter or a greyhound or whatever. Okay, let's move on. Um, chapter 30. If thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thine hand upon thy mouth, Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. <laughs> so the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. Boy. Articulate, isn't it? Okay. So we have dragged our way through 
Proverbs 30. Many of these chapters, uh, the previous 29 of them, uh, may strike us sort of as a hodgepodge of assorted topics with no interconnect. And I personally suspect, having looked at that somewhat diligently to see if there's some kind of structure that makes us all... I finally came to the conclusion that it's designed to be unstructured in the, in the sense. And that's what led me to this proposal that I shared with you before, but I want to remind you again, for you to take, to do it, con conduct an experiment. Get a journal, a blank, a bound book with blank pages, and put a day of the month on each page, 1 through 31. And then each day, whatever the date is, if it's the 10th of the month, you read the 10th chapter of Proverbs. Do it the first thing in the morning. Do it as part of your devotions. I assume you have a devotional pattern, uh, which may include a psalm and, and some be working your way through some book, some book of the Bible. Uh, I was taught by my wife a very clever thing to do that I've gotten quite addicted to. I used to, uh, in my devotion, take a book and work my way through it. A couple of problems with that. Too often it was the book that I was teaching, so that's not a devotional thing. That's a study kind of thing. So they're different. They're different. But it's also, it's, it's sort of a fixed diet. It's sort of having all your meat on Mondays and all your vegetables on Tuesdays and your potatoes on Wednesday. It doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, what my wife taught me to do is to have a few bookmarks. And that's one reason I enjoy the electronic Bible so much, because I can carry it with me, and I can have as many bookmarks as I want. I move each one, one chapter, each day. I try to have one in the Psalms, one in the Proverbs for the day. For the day. I have one in the Torah, one in the historical books, one in the prophets, one in the Gospels, and I treat Acts as a fifth Gospel, and uh, one of the uh, epistles, to give you a feeling for it. And... Uh, and I have them prioritized which ones are the most critical to me. So I, I sometimes don't make, move each one every day. But that's my goal is to, when, I'm, when I show up 15 minutes early for a doctor's appointment, I can knock off one, move each one. So I'll, I like, but the main idea that I learned from her is the idea that gives me a mixed diet each day. It's a regular reading plan. And the way I go out, it takes me through the New Testament twice a year, the Old Testament once. You do that, if, you, if, if I keep up on it. Um, but it also gives me a mixed diet because I have some Torah, some historic history, some Gospels, where you should be anchored anyway, and Paul, uh, epistles by one or the other, and, uh, and of course, and a prophet. And uh, it's a rich thing. But what I'm going to suggest, setting that aside, is in your program, first of all, have a program. If not, shame on you. And when do you feed, when does the shepherd feed the sheep? First thing in the morning. But I'm going to suggest to you, to, as you go through your morning thing, enter, you, 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 uh, uh, read, just read the, the, Proverbs, the chapter of Proverbs for that day, period. At the end of the day, when you turn in, you're ready to crash, read that book of Proverbs, skim it through again, and pick out which verse was the most important to you this day. It may be one that you followed and blessed because you did. It may be one that you didn't, you got clobbered, but whatever. One of those couple of dozen verses will leap out at you as being relevant to that day some way. Jot it down on that day, on that page. Do that for one month. You can start it any day you want and you wrap it around, you know, you've done it a month. 
Do it again the second month and the third. Do it for several months and watch what happens. You're going to read, you'll discover that each day, later on, if you've done this for a few months, you've got three or four entries on each page, right? When you open it up, you'll realize that each time it was a different verse that grabbed you by the scruff of the neck. And you begin to realize that that diet was designed for you. Some of the chapters emphasize sexual sins. Some, the, the, some of the chapters have certain emphases more than others. But most of them are a deliberate mix. And uh, I think it's very instructive. And I, I encourage you to try it. If you find it rewarding, great. If not, uh, no harm, no foul. I think you, but I think, you'll, I think you'll learn some very interesting things by doing that that no one can teach you. You have to experience it yourself. Well, we're getting ready then for the final session of Proverbs. And uh, in our previous sessions, we talked about wicked women in the first nine chapters. There's quite a bit there advising young men about the realities of the wrong kind of women. We also had some remarks in chapter 21 and 25 about nagging wives. No house is big enough and so forth, right? So, so we're going to see that reverse we're going to see the tribute to the godly, dedicated woman in Proverbs 31. Verses that are probably, there are more copies of these sold in bookstores than probably any other sequence of verses to frame and hang over your wife's uh, vanity or whatever because uh, if, it, 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 uh, if, you're fortunate, if you're as fortunate as I am to have an example of that. Tribute to the godly, dedicated woman. And this is also a time for before, between now and the next session to bring your logbook up to date so we can discuss it next time. And it will be, we'll also indulge in a brief review of the whole package of the book of Proverbs. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Proverbs. Download the K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the iTunes or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.